We began last week a new series that will occupy us for the balance of the summer and into the fall, probably taking us well into the month of October. And we introduced that series last week, titling it Living as a Minority Community in a Hostile World. And we attempted last week in a very overview sort of way to introduce the state of affairs in which we find ourselves living here in the early decades of the 21st century. And the balance of our time last week, you remember we went through a series really of just sermon titles that kind of give the structure for where we are planning to go over these next few months together. And we so we begin with the first of those sermons this morning under the title of Persecution is Our Future. Persecution is Our Future. When one reads the book of Acts, which covers the first 30, roughly the first 30 years of the growth of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as it began to expand out across the Roman Empire, the book ends with the Apostle Paul in imprisonment in Rome, there in chapter 28. And as you read through the book, you get the very distinct impression that uh, he is probably going to be released that the case against him is ridiculous and uh, without any kind of evidence to support it. And so when his appeal will finally be heard by Caesar, he will be released. And indeed, that is what happened. Paul was released from that Roman imprisonment and continued on ministering and planting churches for a considerable period of time up to close to another decade. But then in the New Testament, we arrive at the book of 2 Timothy, Paul's last recorded letter uh, that we have uh, there in 2 Timothy. And you get a very different flavor. There's There's a darkness, there's a foreboding in that particular letter. The Apostle Paul is very much conscious by this time that his days on earth are are going to be very short, that his death is right around the corner. And so as you read the book, it's it's got that sort of gloomy uh, atmosphere that kind of surrounds it. Not hopelessness by any stretch, but certainly the finality of a man whose life he knows is soon to end. And in fact, the church tradition is that Paul was shortly after penning that letter beheaded by the Roman government. So the question one wants to ask themselves is what happened to go from the reading of the book of Acts where the persecution of the early church is primarily Jewish in flavor and where the Romans are continually portrayed as those who are are in a sense supporting the church or at least are neutral towards the church of Jesus Christ till you get to the end of the New Testament there and where the Roman authority, the Roman Empire, is no longer a defender of the church, but is now becoming its persecutor. What happened? Well, there were many things to happen, to be sure, but one of the more significant events of history occurred in the year AD 64, when the insane Roman emperor Nero, through his agents launched on some urban renewal project that began by incinerating the city of Rome. Now, that wasn't his intention to burn the entire city down, just a certain section of it that was in his way. But the fire got out of control, and over six days it raged across the city, 
burning out about 30% of the city of Rome. As you might imagine, the population was not particularly enamored with their leadership. And as the rumors began to circulate of Nero being the one responsible for the fire and even fiddling, as the expression goes, uh, playing his harp more appropriately, and uh, sort of singing and talking about how glorious all this was. I mean, the man was absolutely stark raving nuts. The uh, people were angry, and so seeking to divert attention from himself, Nero needed a scapegoat, and the most likely scapegoat at hand were the Christian community. The Christian community. They were already looked on with suspicion by this time by their neighbors, for they were a very peculiar people. They did not enter into the festivities and the, and the way of life of Roman society. They practiced a, a different sexual ethic that, that was an open and living rebuke to the debauchery that existed all around them. And their commitment, their, their, their insistent commitment to this one whom they called the Christ puzzled and, and aggravated the Roman populace. And so Nero effectively was able to shift the, the outrage from himself to the Christian community, and a, and a series of persecutions began. The church from that point on was persecuted for the next 250 years. Government instituted persecutions. It came in a series of 10 waves. And they, as they crashed upon the Christian community, they, they grew in their ferocity. The early waves were sporadic and regional in nature, which meant that if it became bad enough, one could flee to a different part of the empire and escape this more localized kind of persecution. But as the hostility and the animosity grew over the decades, the persecutions grew in intensity until the final three were empire-wide, meaning there was no place to run. The last and worst and bloodiest was under the Emperor Diocletian in the year 8303 to 311. It was a horrific time for the Christian church. If God had not cut it short, it is likely the church would have been exterminated. Why did Rome persecute Christians? Why did they persecute Christians? Why would they give in to such base urge to turn on their fellow man? As I said earlier, there was certainly much about the Christian community that was peculiar, that was, that was not socially acceptable. They didn't fit in. But there was more. There was more. In fact, uh, the late theologian Francis Schaeffer writes in his book, A Christian Manifesto, and I quote, The early Christians died because they would not obey the state in a civil matter. People often say to us that the early church did not show any civil disobedience. They do not know church history. Why were the Christians in the Roman Empire thrown to the lions? From the Christian's viewpoint, it was for a religious reason. But from the viewpoint of the Roman state, they were in civil disobedience. They were civil rebels. 
The Roman state did not care what anybody believed religiously. You could believe anything, or you could be an atheist. But you had to worship Caesar as a sign of your loyalty to the state. The officials of the Roman Empire, in times of persecution, sought to force the Christians to sacrifice, not to any heathen gods, but to the genius of the emperor and the fortune of the city of Rome. And at all times, the Christians' refusal was looked upon not as a religious, but as a political offense. When it's finally, finally boiled down their refusal to say, Caesar is Lord, to offer the pinch of incense, was seen as the height of rebellion and insurrection against the state. And it's for that that they were hounded. They were hounded. So this morning, I want to look with you at what may well be the future of evangelical Christians in America. Why? So that we might begin to prepare ourselves to live out the gospel in an increasingly hostile world. As we do this this morning, I want to do it through a question and answer format. Keeping my eye on the clock, we're going to have to move through some of this material. But I'm going to ask and answer just briefly four questions. That's our outline, four questions that will give us some structure for this morning's topic. Question number one, what is persecution? First question, what is persecution? Well, the word persecute, the primary meaning or definition of the word in both Greek and Hebrew conveys the idea of being chased or pursued for religious reasons. To be chased after or to be pursued. There is an, an, an additional Greek word, sort of an, a, a Another word that, is, that comes to bear on it, the word is slipsis, and it, and it carries the idea of tribulation or, or trouble or affliction. But the main concept for us to keep in mind is the concept of being chased after or being pursued and normally by a governmental authority because of our religious commitments. That's how the Bible sees it. Now, as we begin together here, I think this is probably as good a place as any for me to just tell you that I enter into this topic with a great amount of fear and trepidation. And I do so because I have no personal experience here at all. Everything that I am to say to you comes only from what I have learned from the scriptures and reading. And there are many who have gone before us, many, 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 most of whom remain unnamed, unknown, except to the Lord and their few close friends and family who have indeed suffered greatly through the centuries. And I'm humbled by all of that. I'm humbled that in the face of this incredible testing period, they, they remain strong. They did not wilt. They did not bend the knee. They did not give in. Their commitment to Christ remains strong. And they sealed their testimony, many in their own blood. So as we begin together, I, 
I pray that God would work in our hearts this morning that this would not be just an academic discussion, but the Spirit of God would use it to begin to prepare us that we might take our place in a long line of those faithful witnesses who have gone before us. Persecution is being pursued. It is being chased. What forms does persecution take? Second question. What forms does it take? Now, normally, when we bring up the topic of persecution, people's minds sort of immediately or, or very quickly go to the, to the notion of physical persecution, physical abuse, cruelty, possibly even death. When I was relatively young believer, I encountered the book Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's an old book. And I read that book, and there were times I had to put it down, and I just, it was too much to, to bear. But it's a book you ought to read. It's a book you ought to be familiar with. It recounts the tales of just some of those who have gone before us. But persecution is not always the violent cruelty that ends in death. Typically, it begins more subtly. It progresses. Eventually, it will end up in violence after all other forms of pursuit fail to intimidate the followers of Jesus Christ into bowing the knee before the state, before the authorities. But they don't normally start out immediately with violence. There are other ways to chase after, to pursue the people of God and to, and to seek to force them into conformity. The first of those is what I call reputational persecution. That is an attack on a person's reputation. It takes the form of things like slander or ridicule or scorn from the leaders of society. The scriptures speak about these things. For example, in Acts chapter 11 and verse 26, there in Antioch, Luke records for us that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. They were called Christians. That was not a complimentary term. It was used there as a, as a term of scorn. They were of the party of Christ, the, that crucified one. We read in Hebrews chapter 13 and, and verses 12 through 13, where the writer says, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp. That is, leave Judaism behind, he is saying, bearing his reproach. Bearing his reproach. Let us go out to him. Let us turn our back on that which is dying and bear their reproach. Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, verse 14 and 16, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Isn't that interesting? 
Don't be ashamed, but glorify God in this name. What name? The name Christian. Glorify God that you bear the name Christian. The attack on people's reputation. In 1857, in Rome, there was discovered a piece of graffiti. Graffiti is no, not a modern phenomenon. This piece of graffiti was etched into the plaster wall. It's a, it's a rough and crude diagram. And what the diagram is, basically, it is of a man with the head of a donkey who is being crucified, and there is a young man with a hand raised in worship. And then inscribed on the side there in rough Greek, it says Alamenix, uh, Alamenos, rather, Alexamenos, there we go, Alexamenos, that's kind of a long name. Alexamenos worships his God. So it's just a piece of graffiti basically saying that, the, that this person, this young boy, is worshiping this God who is a crucified man with the head of a donkey. You kind of get the idea. Scorn, ridicule, slander. Another way that persecution comes is what I call societal persecution. Societal Persecution. There's first reputational, that is an attack on a reputation. Then there is what I'm calling societal, that is a, it is the persecution of the society at large against the followers of Christ. And it comes forth in things like discrimination, institutionalized discrimination. It can come in the form of family conflict, being pushed out or excluded from one's natural family. Ultimately, the rejection, the, the being set aside, of being ostracized. Ostracized is the Greek word. It, it has the idea of being driven out from the society or the group, to be ostracized. We see the early seeds of it in John chapter 9 and verse 22. John 9, 22, where there was the, there was the, um, the young man who was born blind, remember? And Jesus healed his sight. And the, and the Pharisees wouldn't believe the miracle that, that clearly could not be denied. And so they're looking to get out from it in any way they can. And they call the boy's parents and they, and they quiz them. And they say, hey, this, is this your son? Yes, it is our son. And, and was he really born blind? And, and, they, and they stop at that point and they basically say, hey, you know what? He's old enough, you ask him. And John inserts the parenthetical and it says, and they said that because they were afraid. Because they knew that anyone who confessed Jesus as the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. John 9.22, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. That is, he would be cut off from all aspects of Jewish life. It was the synagogue in which all of life revolved around. And so to be separated from that would be to be separated from your Judaism, separated from your family, separated from your heritage, separated from economic opportunities, cut off, outcast from the world. Jesus writes in Luke, or he doesn't write, but he, Luke writes, Jesus said, Luke 6.22, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you 
and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Blessed are you when you are expelled or excluded from society because of your commitment to the Son of Man. Reputational persecution, societal persecution. Third, financial persecution. Financial persecution. These first ones don't do the trick. The pressure is increased, and it becomes financial persecution. And this can take many forms. It can take the form of taxation, certain particular or or specially designed taxes that are levied upon those who claim the name of Christ. It can lead to job loss, reduction of employment opportunity. It can bring about asset forfeiture or seizure through legal judgments or just mob action. People have had their houses burned down because they claim the name of Christ. Again, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, where he writes to them, trying to reinvigorate among them. He says earlier, you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. You joyfully accepted the seizure of your property. This whole idea of job loss, we think that couldn't possibly happen. My parents live in a house that was um, built a little over 100 years ago. A number of years back, oh, maybe, maybe 20 years ago now, they were doing a little remodeling, and they opened up a wall in the home that had never been opened up before. And inside that, they found newspapers. Because when the home was built, the newspapers were used to insulate the walls. An interesting thing about the newspapers they found were that there were some help-wanted ads. And this was, a, this was a major Boston newspaper. And as they scanned the help-wanted ads, the thing that stood out in a number of the ads where it listed employment opportunities was the phrase, no Irish need apply. No Irish need apply. That's America a hundred years ago. We say it couldn't happen. Oh, beloved, it very much could happen. It very much could happen. There are in those countries that are governed under Muslim rulership a tax that is applied to all non-Muslims. It's called the jizya. And it's applied to all the zimmi, that is, the non-Muslims that live among them. And it's a tax on them, and and it's levied upon them in exchange for protection under the laws. If you do not pay the tax, then you do not receive protection under the legal system. But only the non-Muslims pay the tax. Taxation, job loss, asset seizure or forfeiture, legal judgments. There are all kinds of financial ways that people can be pursued, can be chased. 
can be harried. And then physical. Reputational, societal, financial, physical. Physical persecution. These are the things like beatings, torture, imprisonment, death, threats of death. Jesus foresaw these things in Matthew 10, verses 28 to 31, where he writes, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Listen, God takes care of the sparrows. God knows the hairs of our head. God is intimately acquainted with us. And God will care for us even when our lives are threatened or even taken from us. The church father, Tertullian, writing in AD 197 from North Africa, he wrote, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That is, that as the blood of the martyrs is spread, seed is cast about on the ground, and the church continues to grow. We can even look in recent events in our own world to things going on in China and places like that where there's been intense persecution, and yet the church has thrived. The blood of the Mars is the seat of the church. A year or so ago, I came across a book that was recommended to me. The title is The Persecutor. The Persecutor. It It's not a particularly well-written book. It's kind of an autobiography, and they typically are not very well-written. And this is an autobiography written by a man by the name of Sergei Kordakov. Sergei Kordakov. He lived from 1951 to 1973. Tells the story of Sergei, who grew up within the Russian system, Russian communism, and was enlisted by them to begin the physical persecution of the underground church in the Soviet Union. And he became very good at it. And he led a band of young thugs who, at direction of the secret police, would break into uh, Christian meetings in people's homes or or ambush them in in the woods where they were meeting and so forth, and they they would beat them up. and, And eventually, as the violence escalated, they ended up killing many of them. Or number of them. He was haunted by this one girl who he was about to kill, who prayed for him in that moment. And now he claims that he had a club in his hand and he was ready to strike her, and something grabbed his wrist, and he turned to see who it was, and there was no one there. And I'm not here to dispute any of that. But from that point forward, he he began to lose his appetite for blood and violence. He finished his time in the Naval Academy. He was uh, placed on a submarine and following that on a a different Russian uh, warship. And eventually he ended up on a trawler and he ended up off the Canadian coast. And he made the decision to jump ship and swim for shore. Almost drowned in the process. He did arrive in Canada. 
He then subsequently made a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, became a believer, and began to speak about the persecution going on behind the Iron Curtain. The book ends, he, uh, he died prematurely, and uh, he died under very suspicious circumstances. You're definitely led to believe that he was killed by Soviet secret police. What form does persecution take? It takes all forms up to and including very violent physical pursuit and chasing. Third, how are we to respond when it comes? How are we to respond when persecution comes? We don't desire persecution. I don't believe anybody desires it. Nor do I believe anybody should ever seek it. Anyone who would take Tertullian's words, uh, the blood of the Mars is the seed of the church, as some sort of a mandate to go get persecuted, I would suggest there's something not quite right upstairs. Persecution is a terrible thing. But we do have specific instruction from our Lord how to respond if and when it comes. He hasn't left us alone. It seems to me, from my reading of the Scriptures, that there are basically four responses for the believer. Four responses for persecution when it comes. These responses are not necessarily sequential, meaning that, you know, it's not this and then, then this and then this and then this. I would suggest that the first one needs to prevail throughout and that the others, there's not a natural progression, that meaning that the fourth one could be the second one, if you understand what I'm saying. So here they are, four responses to persecution when it comes. Number one is patience. Number one is patience. Again, Peter writes, 1 Peter 2.20, what, For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. Patience needs to be the response of the Christian church to persecution. Now, what does that patience look like? Well, let's do it. Let's, we haven't flipped anywhere yet, and I apologize for that. There's just so much to go over here. But, but go ahead. Let's turn to some passages. Let's look at Romans chapter 12 and verse 20. We're going to move quick, just through a few. What does patience look like in the face of persecution? First, it looks like mercy. It looks like mercy. Romans chapter 12 and verse 20. Romans 12, 20. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. That is, show mercy to those who are persecuting you. There are a number of stories, certainly. It's a story that of, of uh, during the Reformation of a, of a man who was being chased literally by the authorities, and he, he fled, was started, it was wintertime, and he started out across a, a, a lake that was only partially frozen, and his pursuer uh, plunged through the ice behind him and was drowning, and he turned back and pulled him from the icy water and certain death, and then himself ended up being captured and then later martyred. So mercy... Mercy, love, 
Love, Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so you may be like your father who sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. Love them. Love them made in the image of God. Men and women who bear the Imago Dei, the very image of God. Love them. Romans 12 and 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. We would look to Christ as our example of that. Right? He was silent as a sheep before its shearers. He did not return to them cursing. Love them. Have confidence in God. Romans 12, verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That is, trust in your king, your God, that he will make things right. He will balance the scales of justice in the end. Vengeance is his, and he will bring it in perfection. Matthew 10, or excuse me, Matthew 5 and verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, not will be someday. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are in possession of it. Have confidence in that reality. Realize there is a realization involved in patience. Realize that persecution is going to come. John 15, verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, Jesus said, A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. If they have persecuted the righteous one, the son of glory, they will certainly persecute his followers. Realize that. And concentrate. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Hebrews 12, 2. Concentrate. The end of verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Have concentrated focus on what's real. What is the ultimate reality? So patience. Secondly, protest. Again, we're going to have to move quickly. Protest. There's a place for protest. I think we see this in the book of Acts in a number of places. We're only going to show you one in Acts chapter 16. Acts 16, verse 37. There, the church, Paul and and, uh, his band have, uh, have first entered into Europe. The gospel has been shared there at Philippi, and some people have been saved, and 
And now they, because of the outroar of the, of the uh, civil magistrates and so forth, and the Jews who are persecuting after Paul, he and Silas are thrown in prison. They are beaten without trial and so forth. And you know how the Philippian jailer is converted and so forth. And then Paul says, basically discloses, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen, which means you can't do that. You have just done to me. Paul says in verse 37, They have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison. Now they are sending us away. Oh, no, 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 no. Well, it doesn't say that. It says no indeed. Okay, but, you know, that's kind of an idiomatic translation, right? But let them come themselves and bring us out. And I believe Paul does that in order to secure the legal standing of the church there in Philippi. It's basically to cause the authorities to back off. But you'll see it in, um, in Acts 22, verses 22 to 29. There Paul invokes his Roman citizenship again. Where they're going to beat him and he, they've got them all tied out. And, you know, they're ready to start flogging him and laying him open. And he says, hey, by the way, just a you know, point of clarification. Is it legal to beat a Roman citizen without trial? Right? And the guy who's about to flog him goes, Eesh calls his senior officer over and says, hey, do you know this guy's a Roman and what we're about to do? And they call the whole thing off, right? So Paul, Paul uses his Roman citizenship. I'll give you one more. You just write it down, check it on your own. Acts 25, verse 11. That's where Paul appeals to Caesar because they're about to release him to the mob. And Paul says, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do that to me. You have no evidence against me. You have no basis to do that. With your own mouth, you've declared me not guilty. I appeal to Caesar. So there is a place to protest, that is, to to make use of the legal options available to the believer in whatever society or context they find themselves in order to push back against the persecution. Apologeticus is the title of Tertullian's most famous work in which he defends Christianity to the to the Roman government by demanding legal toleration and that Christians be treated as all other sects, sects, S-E-C-T-S, in the Roman Empire. Okay? He writes this Apologeticus. And by the way, it's from this treatise, Apologeticus, that the phrase, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, can be found. This is his most famous work. And so some of those early fathers are called the Apologists, because they use their training and skill in rhetoric and law and so forth to push back against the persecution that was coming upon the church over those several centuries. So there is a place to protest. There is a a place to make use of legal recourse. So patience, protest. Third, flight. Flight. When protest and patience proves ineffective, there is always the option of running away. Running away. Proverbs 22 and verse 3, The prudent sees evil and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. Jesus says, Whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through all the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. So when they persecute you in one place, run. To another. Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. On that day, the day of Stephen's martyrdom, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The great persecution broke out, and, and the believers ran. 
They scattered. Acts chapter 17, verses 13 and 14. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea. And Silas and Timothy remained there. They sent Paul away. They had him flee. They had him run. Rather than stay and run the risk of being killed. Very difficult questions here. At what point does a person run away? At what point do we flee? Where do we go? These are hard questions. They don't resolve themselves with simplistic answers. It takes great wisdom. It takes tremendous um, reliance on the Spirit of God. And I believe that people who, who have the Spirit of God can and will come to differing conclusions. Some will decide to stay and remain in the face of persecutions. Others will say, as for me and my house, we're out of here as long as we can. And they're both acceptable. So we cannot into a position where we judge one another or we insist on someone's faith acting out according to the way we think it ought to act out. Flight is always a valid option. It is always a valid option. Fourth, force. 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 That is civil disobedience. Push back. Refuse to obey. Now, when one enters into civil disobedience, one must recognize that by so doing, you will invite down upon your head further retribution. You need to know that. If you push back, if you, if you decide to disobey the laws, don't presume that God will rescue you, right? You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? You need to bow down before the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And they said, we're not going to do it. Well, you will be thrown in the fire and incinerated. We're still not going to do it. God can rescue us. But whether he does or he doesn't, we're not going to do it. Now, of course, God did rescue them. But we should never get from that story the idea that God is obligated to rescue his servants, for he is not. Civil disobedience, the Hebrew midwives who refused to to carry out uh, Herod's command, right? To kill the Jewish boys. They're blessed of God. We see Daniel refusing to obey the command of, of, um, of the authority to not pray, right? And so for three times a day, he, he opens his window and kneels where all can see him disobey. He ends up in a lion's den over it. Acts chapter 4, Acts 4, 19, 18, 19. When the Sanhedrin had summoned them, that is, Peter and John, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Basically, if it's God I need to obey or you, it's, this is not a difficult decision. The consequences could be very difficult. 
Well, the decision itself is not. I must obey God. I must obey God. We see it in verse 29 of the same. As the, as the congregation prays, it says, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. Father, take note of the threats against us, but make us bold. Make us bold. You see a similar pattern in Acts chapter 5, verse 27 to 29, verses 40 to 42. There is a place where civil disobedience, where force has a role to play. Fourth question, quickly. Where is God in all this? Where is God in all of this? Is he distant? Is he sleeping? Does he not care? Our God is the sovereign king of creation. He spoke it all into existence. He sustains it every moment. It exists for his glory. He created us that we might glorify him, that we might worship him, that he redeemed us from our sin, that we might worship him eternally. Proclaim his glory. And if that requires us to to face persecution, then he gives grace in that too. God is intimately involved. Philippians chapter 1, verses 29 to 30. Paul writes, For to you, Philippians, it has been granted. You notice that. It is a gift. It has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him. Salvation is of the Lord. It is a gift of God that has been granted to you and me. But also it has been granted to you, Philippians, to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Hey, we love the gift of salvation. It's the gift of suffering. Though we need a little convincing, we want to unwrap, right? But it comes from the same hand of God. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 11 And there was given to each of them a white robe, speaking of the martyrs coming out of the tribulation. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. There are those whom God has predestined to suffer, right up to and including the shedding of their own blood. This is the hard side of the sovereignty of God. But the God who saves is the same God who leads us through all for his glory. May he pour out upon us grace and mercy in our times of need. Father, the doctrine of persecution, suffering, is so foreign to us, so removed from our context, so hard to wrap our mind around, so scary, particularly for those whose children are young. 
But our Father, let us affirm what we know to be true from your word. You are not cruel. But you are wise and kind and merciful and gracious. And so, O Lord, if, if our commitment to you requires us to feel the wrath of man who would expend it on you should they be able to reach you, but instead must expend it on those who are made in your likeness. Flood us with the grace we need to stand firm. Help us, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.